Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's shoreline is a special place to visit and observe whether you're a casual or serious bird watcher. Coming up, the editor of magazine The Connecticut Warbler will join us to talk about why the state's location attracts a wide variety of migrating birds. Now, August is the last full month to pack in the road trips before sending your children back to school. Have national parks been on your destination list this summer? Later, we'll hear from officials from two popular parks, Zion and Utah, and Acadia here in New England, about the record number of visitors over the last year. How is the surge impacting the country's national parks? What have you observed in recent visits to Acadia, Zion, or others? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, email where we live at WMPR.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, veteran journalist Jim Robbins joins us now by the phone from Montana. He recently wrote a piece about the crowds at U.S. national parks for Yale Environment 360. It's an online magazine examining global environmental issues. Jim, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, You write that crowds at the national parks have become unmanageable. Um, Tell us a little bit about the research that you've done for your story. Well, I went to Zion um, in May, and I was... was shocked at the number of people there. I mean, there's lines for everything, lines to get into the into the restrooms, lines to get onto the shuttles. And <clears throat> I mean, I, national parks have always been considered crowded since I started covering this issue back in the 1980s. But this is unlike anything anyone has seen who, who follows these issues. And so after I went to Zion, I called some other places, Yellowstone, which is not far from where I live, Glacier, and um, found that a lot of the big parks out in the West are, and in the East as well are, are facing this issue of, of crowding beyond anything they've ever experienced before. It's, it's just almost meteoric, the, the number of people who are coming to these parks. Grand Canyon, for example, um, set a record in 2015 with 5 million visitors, which is unheard of. The next year, last year, it went to 6 million, 1 million people, an increase in one year. So these are the kind of things that people are talking about. And all the Park Service uh, people that I've talked to say, they shake their heads and say, this is beyond anything we can even manage. Uh, in your article, you write that Yellowstone uh, back in the 80s had about 2 million visitors, uh, 4 million last year. Uh, and then you mentioned Zion at the beginning of the interview. And, and that's pretty small in comparison to Yellowstone. And how many people, how, how big of a spike have they seen at Zion? Well, it's a, it, roughly the same number. Uh, 1980s, it was 2.3 million, I think. And, and it was the same for Yellowstone. And, and now there are about 4.3 million and so is Yellowstone. But Yellowstone is 15 times larger than, than Zion. Zion's only 147,000 acres with one road, one main road is six miles long. And so you have the same number of people cramming into this little park uh, and trying to do the same things, to go on a couple of big hikes that are famous in Zion, um, the Virgin River Narrows and uh, Angel's Landing. And these these trails, which 
are meant to give, provide you a sense of what the backcountry is like, you know, what, what wild canyon country is like, are now like a highway with hundreds of people on them sometimes uh, at peak peak hours. And it's just not what these parks were set aside to do. And, and now managers there and elsewhere are trying to come with, up with ways to, to kind of get a handle on this uh, overpopulation of the parks. And when you talk about the overcrowding, is this something uh, that is seen throughout most of the year? I'm speaking to you in the summer when most people are taking road trips. Well, the seasons have been extended in some cases like Zion to almost year-round because of the climate there. Uh, it stays warm pretty much all year. There's a few weeks in the winter when uh, when things quiet down. But, you know, it used to be that there were three or four months when there was an off-season. But that's that's gone um, at least from what people have told me who, who are there. And uh, Yellowstone also, I mean, Yellowstone still has winter, and they have a winter season, but it, it's very quiet in the winter because it, obviously it's very cold. Last year I was there in December, and it was 25 below zero uh, most of the time I was there. But their shoulder seasons, September, October, May, and June, have gotten much busier. And what's going on is a lot of... Um, uh, the tour companies realize summer is so crowded that they book these trips now for the shoulder seasons, mm-hmm. September and October. And I saw a bumper sticker in Jackson, Wyoming, which is a gateway community to Yellowstone, and it said, bring back the shoulder seasons, because now the shoulder seasons are just so jammed with people. And that's what the locals live for, is when the crowds go home and they kind of have the park to, to themselves. Uh, in your story, you mentioned the term Greenlock uh, and Zion in Utah being a, a good example of that. What do you mean by Greenlock? Well, Greenlock is what the term that I use for gridlock in natural places, and it is gridlock. I mean, Glacier National Park, which is not too far from where I live, you can't, you know, there are great hikes there. You go up to Logan Pass, which is on the Going to the Sun Highway, which is cuts through the heart of some of the most beautiful country in in our country it's world famous this highway and people come from all over to drive over it and uh, you get to the top and there's a parking lot and you can park and hike any of these trails there's mountain goats and snow-capped peaks and so on but you can't park mm-hmm. you know, the, the parking lot now is so crowded and so many people are waiting that you drive around for a couple of hours and still can't find a place to park and so you end up not being able to visit some of these places. And the Park Service is loath to to expand the infrastructure in these parks because these parks um, were set aside to provide a sense of, of naturalness and, and remoteness and, and wilderness. And if you start building bigger and more expansive facilities, you lose the sense of what these parks are, are, are set aside for. So they, they really don't want to do that, and so you're stuck with with waiting in line. That's what a lot of people do when they visit national parks these days. This is where we live. Have you visited a national park recently? What's been your experience? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Jim Robbins is on the phone with us uh, from Montana. He's a veteran journalist, writes for the New York Times, and for Yale Environment 360, his recent article, How a Surge in Visitors is Overwhelming America's National Parks. Uh, Jim, how much can this be pointed to all the attention for the centennial of the U.S., uh, the national parks, in terms of the surge that, that these parks are seeing? That's a good question. I mean, last year was the centennial, uh, 2016, 
and um, 100 years of parks. And um, I think some of that was due to the campaign, the Find Your Park campaign that the National Park Service had. But this year they're still seeing this tremendous increase in numbers. Glacier National Park just announced it set a record in July with over a million visitors uh, in, in one month. Uh, when I started reporting on these issues in the early 1980s, they got 650,000 people a year. Um, so it's not, it, I think that Find Your Park was part, maybe part of this, but there are a number of other factors that are leading to this kind of increase um, that people point to. <clears throat> One is um, social media. Uh, someone goes up to Logan Pass or they go to the Arches National Park, and they show these tremendous views. They take a selfie, and they put it on social media. And people say, gee, I want to go there. I want to see that. And uh, and then it's exponential. They do the same thing. And so that, that's part of it. Um, part of it is 10,000 people a day retire, turn 65 and retire, and they want to travel. And uh, the number of travelers has grown immensely. And I should say this is not just a problem for the national parks here. This is a problem for tourist destinations all over the world. National parks are are, um, are one facet of that. But uh, there's been a number of different places that are now starting to revolt against the number of tourists coming, including the national parks, uh, because they just can't, can't take it anymore. Uh, Zion is talking about making reservations, having visitors make reservations to the park. And I'm sure a number of other parks will be talking about the same thing because almost every park, uh, people from every park that I talked to just said it's just they can't deal with this anymore. Um, part, of the, part of the problem is promotion of these parks by the states that, uh, that they're in. Utah, for example, had a campaign called the Mighty Five, all over the world, they, they ran advertisements urging people to come to Red Rock Country and, and to see these canyons. And, of course, it's dramatic stuff. It's dramatic scenery. And so it's, uh, it's been effective. And uh, one of the people I talked to um, from the state said, you know, these parks are on everybody's bucket list in Europe. I mean, so and, and that fits with my my uh, research that there are people from all over the world coming to these parks, uh, especially Asia. China seems to have a lot of travelers these days because of their, their economic well-being and large buses of visitors from, from China especially are in Yellowstone and Zion and other places, and it's really uh, a big part of the crowding these days. Now, Jim, you mentioned uh, that there are a, a lot of... Uh tourists from abroad, especially in China, that are coming over. Uh, we're talking about how uh, this can really uh, diminish the experience when you go to see uh, the beautiful western part uh, of our country, and again, some national parks on the eastern side, too. Uh, but what about the ecology, the damage being done to these parks? Yeah, that's, that's a big concern. I know the um, Virgin River Narrows, uh, which is the, uh, pre- one of the pre- premier hikes in Zion, uh, human waste is a problem. It's a it's a canyon. It's a very narrow red rock canyon, slot canyon in some places, and people uh, have no choice. It's it's like 13 miles long, I think, the hike, and so people just peel off and go go somewhere. And human waste is an issue there. Trampling the vegetation in the river, trampling uh, aquatic insects. Um, 
in some places uh, people are there's traffic jams on the on the trails people are jostling to to get to um angels landing and it's a concern it's safety concern because there's so many people on a very steep trail i went to one uh waterfall hike and uh there were probably 100 people standing around the waterfall someone had a boombox playing and and as uh, i mentioned in the piece it's less like a, a red rock cathedral and more like a, a beach scene um just because of the overwhelming number of people and these are places that were were set aside for their kind of hallowed nature. You know, this is nature in its 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 peak, uh, and uh, and to be there with you know 100 or 200 people is just not what you get. You're not going to get the kind of experience that this was meant to provide. And Jim, we wanted to hear from some listeners who may have visited uh, national parks recently. I wanted to take a call, and you can join the conversation too. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Again, we're talking about our national parks and a problem of overcrowding. Uh, what happens to the parks? Uh, the very nature that people are seeking. Uh, Karen's calling from Middlebury. Karen, you're on the show. Hi, how are you? Good. Tell us, uh, what, how has it been your recent experience at National Parks? Well, I just returned from uh, North and South Dakota, Wyoming, and Colorado last week. And uh, the park in North Dakota, Teddy Roosevelt, we were there on a Tuesday morning, and I don't think there were 20 people in the entire park. It was empty. Uh, South Dakota, we were at Wind Cave, which you had to sign up ahead of time for the um which we did, and it wasn't overly crowded. We were in Badlands, and it was not overly crowded, but it was also 107 degrees when we were there. Uh, Rocky Mountain, we expected it to be crowded, and actually, uh, when we went up to the Alpine uh, lookout, that was closed because there were no parking spaces left. So I guess it depends, you know, where the park is and what time of year you are there. Now, Karen, did you did you feel like some of your experience uh, again was di- dis- diminished at all because of some of the crowds that you may have seen? No, no, because I expected it in Rocky Mountain, and it was not crowded in North and South Dakota. And was this your first time visiting these parks? Yeah, um, my friend and I are on a quest to visit every park before we die, <laughs> so we average about four a year. And depends again. Not going in midsummer is probably the best thing. Well, uh, that sounds like a good venture to have with a friend. Thank you, Karen, uh, for your call. And Jim, I understand there are about fifty-nine U.S. national parks. Some probably more crowded than others. Uh, we're talking about this in a time where we're under a new administration. Uh, I know the Interior Secretary is looking at reviewing um, some designations of U.S. national monuments. What does this mean for resources for the national park system or service? Well, the national park system proposed uh, budget by President Trump is seeing a budget cut of about 13 percent, which is already, the National Park Service budget has already seen cuts and, and it's already behind, way behind on on uh, uh, staff issues and um, on uh, infrastructure spending and so on. So people are concerned that this crush of visitors to some of the big parks is, is going to make things worse. I know Zion says that uh, that they can't keep up with the, uh, they don't have enough personnel to keep up with the trash, and they change a garbage can and it's full, and 
and not too long, uh, it's starting to overflow, and they just can't keep up because they, they don't have enough personnel. So those kinds of things, there aren't enough law enforcement rangers in some of the parks to, to deal with the added crowds. And so there's people like in Yellowstone walking on geothermal areas where they shouldn't be taking selfies, and there just isn't someone around to kind of uh, monitor that. So those are the kind of concerns with the, with the budget that people are are worried about. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the popularity of the U.S. national parks, which in one way is a good thing, exploring the beauty of our country, but all the interests can impact the very nature of the protected lands. Now, coming up, we're going to hear from some park officials from both Acadia National Park in Maine and Zion National Park in Utah. Um, on the phone with us, Jim Robbins, a veteran journalist who recently wrote a piece for Yale Environment 360 about overcrowding at our national parks. What has been your experience? You can join the conversation, 860 860- 275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you visited a national park this summer? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Uh, we're speaking with veteran journalist Jim Robbins, uh, who recently wrote a piece for Yale Environment 360 about overcrowding at some of uh, the national parks and how that's impacting the whole rustic experience and the park's ecology. Uh, we're going to hear from park officials from two parts of the country now, Zion National Park in Utah and Acadia National Park in Maine. And again, you can join the conversation, 860 I want to first turn to uh, Ali Baltris, uh, Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at Zion National Park in Utah. Ali, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I understand Zion is uh, fairly small in comparison to some of our other national parks, but the number of visitors has increased exponentially. What makes people go to Zion? I think there's a number of things. We've been seeing it over the past um, probably three to four years that we have been really increasing. We were stable from, you know, about um, about 2.4, 2.5 million folks, and then um, and then we went up to 3.1, 3.6. Last year was 4.2. So um, I think it's a combination. You know, gas prices are down. A lot of people are traveling. A lot of citizens are traveling throughout the country. Um, then a lot of Europeans, um, like Jim said, and Asians are also coming to the United States to, to look at national parks. And, you know, I think a lot of, I agree with a lot of what Jim said was, you know, that there's a lot of different things occurring at the same time. You know, states are pushing parks in order for to gain tourism. Um, and then we also did just have our anniversary. Uh, you mentioned uh, Zion has been seeing uh, growing numbers. I understand in Jim's article that uh, your park was the first to begin this shuttle service to help deal with the traffic. Um, is that even working these days? No, it's actually not. So we started that in 2000. And um, at that time, we had a similar issue. We had a capacity issue, but our capacity was parking in the main canyon. So there's about 500 parking spaces. And I remember coming as a visitor. And, you know, once those parking spaces were gone, you there was just nowhere to go. And so there was a lot of traffic and things. And so in the late 1990s, they decided to implement the shuttle system. And, you know, they would run shuttles. The shuttles hold about 68 people. And they'd run every 10 minutes. Then they started increasing it to seven minutes, five minutes. They're down to four minutes. So 68 people every four minutes. 
and our lines start at usually 7, 8 a.m., and they'll go till 1, 2 p.m., and literally just every four minutes, we can move 68 people into the park. Mm. So what are some solutions? Uh, John Marciano was quoted as saying that uh, you know, Zion and others need to come up with some kind of management plan to preserve resources uh, and make the experience a good one. What does it take to get to that, a management plan? Are reservations part of, of that proposal? They are. So we're in the middle of a visitor use management plan. Um, we did a transportation study a couple years back to see if we could improve you know, moving people and everything. And what came out of that is we can do a little bit of tinkering, and we have, but we can't um, shuttle our way out of it. We can't build our way out of it. Um, the problem now, our capacity is the capacity of the resource itself, the capacity of the trails and of the visitor experience. So um, so what we are looking at, and um, right now there's um, time for folks to to chime in with their opinions and things like that. We're about halfway through a visitor use management study, um, but, but two of the options are different types of um, reservation systems. Mm. I wanted to um, get another perspective. So, Ali, stay with us as we bring in the conversation. Christy Anastasia, public affairs specialist at Acadia National Park in Maine. Christy, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation to join this conversation. And what is Acadia seeing these days in terms of record crowds? Yeah, um, similar to what Ali was talking about, um, our visitation has been increasing. Um, In the past 10 years, uh, it's increased about 58%. And so what has that mean for, what has that meant for the experience at the park? So what are you seeing in terms of um, some of the negative consequences of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certain times and certain places, uh, there is a lot of congestion in the park. And so, you know, for example, if you drove up to Acadia yesterday and you were really excited to see the sunrise at 530 this morning, you know, that would require you to wake up your kids at about like four o'clock in the morning, get them in the car to uh, get to the base of the Cadillac Summit Road. Um, and some days you might be greeted with a long line. Um, and a temporary closure on that road that said that you couldn't go to the summit because uh, all the parking spaces were taken up and there actually was a line. That's not the kind of experience we want visitors to have here. And so what are some solutions? We heard from Allie that they're thinking over at Zion to have a particular uh, management plan that would require possibly reservations. They want the public to to weigh in on that. Uh, What is the take here in Acadia about how to handle some of this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Over time, um, we've been implementing lots of different solutions. So Ali spoke about the shuttle system in Zion, and Acadia has had a public transportation system called the Island Explorer since 1999, Um, and it's a partnership with uh, Friends of Acadia, the Maine Department of Transportation, and L.L. Bean, Um, and that allows people to have a really great experience. I mean, they don't have to worry about parking their car or driving, you know, they can actually look out the window and take in the view rather than worry about uh, driving their vehicle. And it's more of a social experience. You get to sit on a bus and chat with other people who are also excited about being in the national park. So the um, the transportation system has been very successful. Um, it typically starts around uh, the end of June and goes to uh, Columbus Day. This year, um, just the past seven weeks or so that we've been running the Island Explorer, uh, we've already had uh, 10,000 passengers on that. So that can help quite a bit. Uh, We've had uh, various uh, 
internships and staffing uh, new positions in the park that work with visitors to understand you know, where they can park, how they can park, and how they can access other places in the park. Uh, so we have summit stewards and visitor service assistants. Um, in the long run, um, very similar design, we're engaging in conversations about um, a transportation plan um, that hopefully will provide safe and efficient transportation for visitors um, while making sure that the park resources um, are protected. Now, I'm curious, when people go and, and pay the gate fee to get into Acadia, when you're talking about the record crowds, uh, Christy, are some of these people you know, bypassing uh, those gates? Like, how do you control people who are just coming in uh, without paying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Acadia is interesting in the sense that, um, you know, it's not a box with like one gate on the top where you come in and out. Um, there are 37 different entrances to Acadia National Park. Uh, each one is marked, you know, entering Acadia National Park and also marked with park entrance passes required. Um, it, it's important for folks to pay those entrance fees because 80% of those fees stay in the park where the entrance fee is paid and goes towards um, projects that make the visitor experience better, you know, so whether it's you know, lifeguards or, uh, you know, folks that are helping with parking um, or maintenance projects. Those are really important. I want to take some listener calls. Again, we're talking about uh, overcrowding at some of uh, U.S. national parks. And if you've uh, come back from a national park recently, we want to hear about the experience of your visit, 860-275-7266. We have parks officials from both Zion and Utah and Acadia and Maine on the phone, as well as veteran journalist uh, Jim Robbins. Uh, Seth is calling from Colchester. Seth, you're on the show. Hi, good morning. Yeah, I just uh, returned uh, with my family from a trip to Yellowstone, and uh, I'd made the mistake of going on a weekend uh, in midsummer and uh, faced a lot of crowds, um, and especially lines at the bathrooms, um, which was a bit of a challenge because it interrupted the experience. Uh, but I think overall, my, my curiosity is if there's a demand for it, um, wouldn't we just charge more for entrance, maybe by person and not by vehicle? Mm. Uh, and therefore, that would maybe draw down um, the amount of people who go or uh, just increase the resources available to support the, the site. Well, thank you, Seth. Yeah, your cell phone is cutting in and out, but we did hear your question. Uh, I'll let uh, Ali Baltris take that one in terms of uh, Seth asking, why not just increase the park's fee? How much does it cost to enter Zion? And uh, what would it take uh, in terms of raising the rates? I would assume there'd be some backlash, uh, Ali, from people who you know, don't want to pay too much. Yeah, I think the concern with raising um, rates at any of the national parks is to raise it out of the reach of um, the average um, citizen. You know, we we definitely want to maintain our ability to for everybody to be able to use the parks. Um, so I think that's I think that's where the concern is about raising it. For Zion specifically, um, we really yeah. There's there's just no there's no real good way. You know, to you know, then you would make it an elitist type park, and I think that's really a concern. So we want to do whatever we can do. We want to make sure we're fair. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that um, if we're limiting the number of folks that can come, that we're doing it equally between commercial use and 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 families coming. But we really don't want to move it so far out of range that um, 
that um, families um, won't be able to to enjoy the park. Allie, uh, uh, increase in fees, a possibility considering that the um, president's administration is looking at cutting the National Park Service by 13 percent? So there's, it's a possibility. Um, there's, uh, we do our fees um, nationally for the most part. Um, so we would need to raise it on a, on a national level. And we did that just recently. So I don't know that that is something that is on the table um, individually for each park. You know, we're looking at uh, ways to um, um, utilize fees um, so that, you know, maybe it's not a five-day pass or something like that. But um, we're probably not going to, to raise them again right now. You can join the conversation on where we live, 860-275-7266. Speaking of cost, uh, Lynn from New Rochelle is on the line. Lynn, go ahead with your question or comment. Well, I just got an email from my college alumni association, and they asked all of us to purchase the senior lifetime pass because at the end of August, it's going from $10 to $80. That seems like a big bump. Uh, Jim Robbins is on. In light of the National Park Service reducing the proposed budget by 13%. Yes, Mm -hmm. it is. And since we travel, we're the (laughs) senior citizens of which you spoke who visit the parks in great numbers. I don't know how this will impact our numbers Mm -hmm. and whether this is a conscious effort to limit the number of people visiting in the light of the senior citizen uh, population. Now, Lynn, we're hearing that because of overcrowding at some of these parks, you know, there's lots of impact, uh, negative impacts uh, on the parks. If this money could be used to help deal with that and, and uh, with the management of the parks and to, to protect some of these lands, is that something that you'd be open to, to doing? Of course, but why is the onus falling on the senior citizen? If you're going to raise the rates, then you do it across the board. You don't select a certain cohort and increase only their fees. All right, Lynn. Uh, that was Lynn from New Rochelle. I'll have Jim Robbins uh, take uh, her comment as well. Again, he's a veteran journalist, been been focusing on the, the U.S. national parks for some time, and he wrote a piece recently for Yale Environment 360. I understand, Jim, that the senior pass has stayed at $10 since 1994. That's right, and $10 is a lifetime pass. So when you turn 62, which I actually just did this year and, and got my pass, you pay $10 and you get into any federal um, reserve that's national parks, monuments, and so on for free. So essentially for the rest of your life. So it, 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 it spends such a low amount paid that I, it's rather than saying, well, this is a way to fund the parks, Congress has said, well, we need to raise this and, and it's just it's just too low. So I think that's what's driving it. But I wanted to mention that I think a couple of the strategies other strategies for dealing with crowded parks. One of them, you meant you talk, had a caller who talked about how uh, Wind Cave and uh, Teddy Roosevelt weren't crowded at all. And so, one of the things that that strategies that might be done, and people are talking about, is promoting the lesser uh, lesser known parks uh, nationally, so that you spread some of the visitation to those those units. Um, but people are always still going to want to go and see Yellowstone and Glacier and Rocky Mountain and, and Zion. Um, the other possibility that I've heard people talk about is is limiting the number of foreign visitors because these are American parks and Americans pay taxes to maintain them. Um, and a lot of these uh, international visitors are coming on commercial tours. So maybe there's a way to at least put a, uh, some sort of ceiling on the number of people who come from other countries. I don't know what 
what where that's at in terms of a proposal or it's just talk but those are a couple of the ideas behind uh, behind reducing the number of visitors to these parks and Jim in your reporting I had asked this question to the parks officials a little bit earlier but in terms of this idea of requiring reservations is that something that has some some teeth well I think Zion could answer that I think they're the closest to they're talking about it now um, I don't think there are any other places, any other national parks that require reservations for anything besides hotels. And that's another part of this we haven't talked about. It's, it's hard to get into these campgrounds and hotels in these national parks because the people make reservations way ahead of time. So, you know, you decide, well, let's go to Zion, and you go uh, a few days later, and so this, and you can't get in. I mean, there are lines to get a campsite at, at Zion that start queuing up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning because it's first come, first serve, and some of them, and people can't get in. And by 9 o'clock, the campsites are full. So the, the, the adventure of visiting this national park and that one, the spontaneity that a lot of, of these parks used to kind of uh, engender in, in visitors, it's gone because you you, uh, you can't get in and, and get a spot, and you have to keep driving and going to the next to the next park and see if there's something there. I know in Arches National Park, which is a small campground, uh, people were trying to get into the park, and the line getting into Arches was was so long, they backed up and they were blocking the main highway, and they had to, to shut down the, the highway there because there were so many so many cars. And Arches is, you know, very remote out in the rural part of Utah, and it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's way beyond capacity in a lot of these parks. We're getting a tweet from a listener, Matthew, who writes that just got back from Acadia, and while parking lots were often full, most hiking, biking trails were surprisingly uncrowded. Uh, so Christy Anastasia, again, public affairs specialist at uh, Acadia National Park, uh, here's someone who had a fairly good experience at your park in Maine. Yeah, I, I would definitely echo that sentiment. Uh, the parking lots sometimes can be full, uh, but once you get onto a carriage road or a hiking trail, uh, folks have spread out enough across the landscape that you can still have a great experience. Uh, I think it's important to really think about how people uh, visit Acadia and traditionally uh, between the hours of 10 and 4, it can be really busy. And you can go to a place that had a completely full parking lot um, an hour later, and it can be empty. So there are some uh, trends in national parks that, uh, if you're creative, you can work around them. I wanted to fit in another call. Uh, Nancy's calling from Hartford. Nancy, you're on the show. Um, hi. Um, great show that you're having, Lucy. It's just fabulous to talk about the national parks. They're wonderful. Um, and I want to mention one that I went to just a couple of months ago. It's the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad uh, National Historical Park. And it's uh, down on the eastern shore of Maryland where uh, Harriet Tubman was born and where she um, grew up and lived with her family for the early part of her life. And um, it, it's just a marvelous park, uh, beautiful grounds. It's on a national wildlife, uh, or right, embedded within a national wildlife reserve. Um, and the museum itself is, uh, it embodies her life in that it starts in um, at home and the rooms are kind of uh, are slightly gloomy. And then it opens up into the north as you walk through the park. It's into, into light and openness. Um, and the other wonderful thing about the museum is that it is... Um, the, the exhibits are largely touchable so that children walk up to them and can put their hands on, um, you know, the, the, the 
statue of Harriet Tubman as a child catching a muskrat, and they touch the little muskrat statue, and they can touch the the surface of the uh, what look appears to be water. It isn't actually water, but it's very friendly to children and um, a very easy museum to navigate through as well, well. Well, thank you, Nancy, for letting us know about the the new Harriet Tubman National Monument. Um, I appreciate your call. I, I just wanted to, before we head to break, I wanted to go back to Jim Robbins. So we were talking about, uh, again, the consequences, you know, the positive, the negative of people going to national parks. Um, in terms of where you might see some change, are we looking at 2018 and beyond in terms of where we might see some reservations, if that is a, something adopted, Jim? I think it's going to take longer than that to get something that, that major, a, a major shift in policy like that. I think it's going to take at least a couple, a couple of years. So I don't know when we'll, I don't think we'll see anything like that, that fairly soon. I wanted to add one other thing about, about people getting off, you know, out into the backcountry in some of these parks, and there's fewer crowds. But what there is, what, what happens when, when people do that is you, you end up kind of going into those places where there's wildlife, and um, you end up kind of invading and displacing um, wildlife in, in that territory. So even though it's, there's fewer people, there's an ecological side to an increased number of people off trail and Yellowstone and Glacier and so on, and, and the impact that it has on on these refuges for wildlife, these national parks are refuges, and it, it has an impact. Well, I want to thank Jim Robbins, again, a, a journalist based in Montana, wrote a piece for Yale Environment 360 about a surge in visitors overwhelming America's national parks. Jim, we appreciate your perspective this hour. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Also, Ali Baltris, uh, Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at Zion National Park, park in Utah. Thank you, Ali. Thank you very much, and we would love for people to comment on our on our plan. They can go to our website. We really understand that this is not um, this is not something we want to do. We're really looking for ways to to help the park, though. Well, thank you, Allie, for your time, and Christy Anastasia, spokesperson for Acadia National Park in Maine. Uh, thank you for joining us as well, Allie. Uh, thank you. And Christy. Um, I, I love hearing from people who love all the uh, units of the national park system. There's over 410 units, so uh, folks should get out and find those unique stories at all those different sites. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, next time you're on Connecticut Shoreline, you may see birds you've never seen before. Editor of the Connecticut Warbler joins us to talk about how the state's location helps attract a wide variety of migrating birds. Are you an amateur birder? As we head into the weekend, join the conversation. We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, the National Geographic Society estimates one language will die every two weeks. When that happens, what happens to the culture, the people who once spoke its words? We'll hear from Connecticut researchers working to preserve endangered languages, including a linguist fluent in the Mohegan language. That's Monday. Now, today we've been focusing on the outdoors, and we're going to switch to something I know I've personally enjoyed doing since I was a little girl, and that's bird watching. Our next guest is probably a much bigger expert than I ever was, a Greg Hanasek, editor of the Connecticut Warbler, a publication of the Connecticut Ornithological Association. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about uh, the Connecticut Warbler for people who may not know this publication. And how did you get involved in birding? 
Well, the Connecticut Warbler is a quarterly publication of the Connecticut Ornithological Association. That's a an all-volunteer organization that uh, promotes birds and bird watching in Connecticut. Um, I, I've been interested really forever. I, it, some people just sort of have a natural inclination for this, and I'm one of those. Other people at different stages of their life, for some reason, everybody has a different story of what sparked them to really get interested. But I, I've been doing this so long that I actually, one of my earliest memories of any kind, and I was probably about four years old because I was in, we were living in a house before I started kindergarten, and, and I can remember my dad picking me up, taking me to the um, kitchen window, and looking out onto some farm fields that were behind our house and pointing out a shrike to me. Mm. And uh, ever, you know, ever since then, I, I've been interested in birds. Uh, and he, he fostered that. He was a doctor not a real avid birder, but he um, he was interested. We had field guides in the house. We had um, bird feeders. He knew the common birds. We'd go for Sunday rides, and he'd point them out and tell me what a red-winged blackbird sounded like, things like that. You mentioned a shrike. What does that look like? Well, a shrike is a, is a predatory songbird. So it's the size of a robin or a blue jay, but it has a, a powerful hooked bill like a hawk. So it's able to kill kill things. It's you know small birds and uh, uh, rodents, things like that. Now I mentioned uh, that you're uh, again the editor of the Connecticut Warbler. Um, I'm curious. I've heard since I moved to Connecticut that this is a great place to see lots of different types of birds. I've gone to Mixed Point um, at Hammonasset. Tell us where some of the the best places are to see these birds as they're migrating. Well, uh, there, there are actually a lot of places in Connecticut. It's Although it's a, a state with a big population, we've got five cities over 100,000. But we've also got a lot of rural areas and a nice mixture of habitats. That That's the big thing in, uh, you know, finding a variety of birds. The more habitats you can visit, the, the more variety you're, you're going to see. Uh, you mentioned Meg's Point and Hammonasset. I would say most people consider Hammonasset to be the best overall birding place in Connecticut. And why would that be? It has a lot of different habitats. It's it's big. It's got the open sound. It's got salt marsh. It's got open fields. It's got patches of woods. So it's got all, a little bit of almost everything. I may have seen you there when I've been the, one of the, the birders with the very impressive binoculars or a photo lens. Well, yeah, there's a couple photographers who are there constantly with their big lenses. And of course, a lot of birders have spotting scopes also. So you'll, you'll see those. So that's the best place overall. There's a, a few, uh, probably the best inland place is White Memorial in Litchfield. Uh, it's it's big. It's a private it's a private foundation that runs it, but it, it again has a for an inland spot. It has a tremendous array of habitats. It's right on Bantam Lake. There's freshwater marshes. There's a little bit of uh, open fields. There's a lot of different types of woodlands. A lot of trails. So those are those are probably two of the best known and and really productive places. But there are many many other small places that you can go. I often can't get out of my neighborhood on a May morning because it's an older residential neighborhood with big oak trees, which attract migrating warblers. And I start walking around the neighborhood, and, and a couple hours later, I'm still walking around there. Do you need a fancy binocular to, 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 to see these birds? What you, do you recommend? You need binoculars. You don't need fancy binoculars. <laughs> and um, the uh, the optical 
industry has producing more and more binoculars that are good that aren't tremendously expensive. You're going to spend a little bit of money, but for $300, you could get a very decent pair, and you could even spend less than that. Um, I, I would recommend that you look for a shop that uh, specializes in that as opposed to going to a big box store somewhere. That kind of place will have a lot of information for you. Now, we've heard of the annual bird count um, every year. I understand you also take a, a part in something called the hawk count. Uh, where's a good place to go to see hawks, and how have you seen the population change over the years? Well, there, the, first of all, there's a lot of different kinds of bird counts. It, it, there's, a, there's Christmas bird counts. There's summer bird counts. The hawk, hawk watches are kind of a specialized thing, and uh, they're, they're basically individual uh, events that are done at different different uh, amounts of uh, people are involved. But basically, there's an organization called the Hawk Migration Association of North America. So anyone, anyone who does an organized hawk count will send their all their information into that place, and then it'll all get collated and, and get into a database. Uh, I participate in the Hawk Watch at Lighthouse Point in New Haven, which is a a long-standing one, very... By the way, these are all fall events. Hawk, the, the, just because of the, the nature of uh, North American geography, fall hawk migration is something that you can see visibly because they migrate during the day. And if you're at a spot that, for because of the geography, uh, causes them to fly past... You, so, if, you know, the most famous place is Hawk Mountain in... Uh, in Pennsylvania, which I grew up with, in, with less than an hour away from. So I used to go there with my dad when I was a kid. But Lighthouse Point is, is different. It's, um, it's a coastal hawk watch. And really, Connecticut's, Connecticut is unique on the East Coast in, in, in one way anyway, and that's that our coast runs east-west instead of north-south. When birds are flying s- south and they encounter our east-west coast, and see Long Island Sound out in front of them, many do not want to cross Long Island Sound. So they take a right turn and just follow the coast. And the, the, the geography around Lighthouse Point is such that they're, they're funneled right into the point because they've got the, they've got the sound on their left, and then right, the, right in front of them when they get to Lighthouse Point is New Haven Harbor. So they're somewhat unsure of what to do, some of them. A lot of them will circle around there, some will gain altitude and cross. Some will go actually go north up the shore of New Haven Harbor and cross somewhere else. So it's it's a funnel, and it's uh, and it can be very exciting there on good days. The weather conditions have to be right. Weather conditions are everything. Get a strong northwest wind. The hawks will come, and the watchers will come. People who are interested in it know what's a good day and what's a bad day. So, Greg Hanasek is a longtime bird watcher, also editor of the Connecticut Warbler. We're talking about birding in the state of Connecticut. We just heard Greg talk about uh, the uniqueness of the location of our state and seeing uh, migratory birds. You mentioned uh, Mix Point at Hammonasset in Madison, also Lighthouse Point in New Haven. What are some other places people can go um, if they're interested in birding? We just have a couple minutes, Greg. Well, there there are really many places. Any any a lot of our state parks are good. Sherwood Island State Park down in Fairfield County is good. Harkness Memorial, out in um, in uh, Waterford, and inland really Connecticut has a lot of state forests which really aren't visited that much. You you can, and and another thing to bear in mind is you don't need a big place to go and see birds. 
a lot of people who who birdwatch have favorite spots near their house, a cemetery, a little park with a pond, the kind of place that you would never drive a long distance to go to because any given day you, there might not be much there. But if it's near your house and you can go almost every day for 10 minutes, a half hour before work, after work, at lunch, the amount of things you will see over time it will be it can be really incredible. You mentioned the the shrike that you saw as a child. You participate in the hawk watches. What's your favorite bird, Greg? Oh, I could never answer that question. <laughs> no, you, could, you could never top do five. that. It's <laughs> top five. I couldn't even. I don't even think I could do that. I mean, there's first of all, Connecticut has recorded 439 different species of birds. In a given year, somebody who went crazy and really worked at it, and a few people have, you could see 300 different species in a year. You could see 200 in a year pretty routinely if, you're, if you work at it a bit. So there, there's, there's a lot of birds, and I think, I think everyone, um, uh, it's what you're seeing now, and you, 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 know, you find something really great, and you think, boy, you, know, you almost think that's your favorite bird until the next one comes along. It would be, would be very, I, I enjoy the hawks. I've always done hawk watching. I say the osprey is one of my favorites. It's a bird that has come back from very uh, uh, tough times. But, um, yeah, very, very difficult for to get anybody who birds a lot to z- zero in on one. <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming in and sharing some of your expertise with us. Again, Greg Hanasek, a longtime bird watcher, editor of the Connecticut Warbler. A really nice profile of you uh, featured in Narratively, and we'll uh, send out that link to our listeners at Where We Live. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for coming in. Maybe I'll see you at Mixed Point sometime. Okay, thank you. Today's show produced by Jeff Tyson. Thanks, Special thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. And have a great weekend. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>